0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 18th, 2021. We are up to episode... 2,986, it's a Thursday. That means it's time for Expert Council q and I've got a good lineup for you today. Here's what we're going to be talking about. First of all, in the Ron Paul Liberty Report highlights, I have for you three really cool pieces in this uh, about seven-minute segment. Ron Paul will tell you about the blatant corporatism, and dare I say fascism, of Pfizer, Biotech, and Moderna making right now $1,000 a minute. Dan McAdams from Ron Paul's team will talk about how Bill Gates has now admitted vaccines only slightly reduce transmission. And Chris Rossini will tell us why central planners and globalists are doomed to failure. John Bush will then give us two answers to two separate cryptocurrency questions. Dr. Ken Berry will give us thoughts on getting the COVID jab while pregnant or nursing. And his advice and mine are pretty similar. No, I don't. Derek Bonpietro. We'll talk about using free natural gas in a standby generator, and thoughts on natural gas vehicles. I'll have some ways to expand on this one a little bit. Uh, Sean Mills will talk about using grid-tied battery backup systems, why more people don't do it. And I'll talk about a little bit with it, too, some of the scalability that goes along with it if you do do it. But it's really a cost issue. Uh, Doc Bones will talk about making stored antibiotics and, and pharmaceuticals as a whole, for that matter, last longer and have less degradation. Nicole Sauce will have thoughts about starting your own coffee roasting business. I'm going to piggyback on that one a little bit with more about how it applies to any business, period. And then I have thoughts on a quote of the day from uh, astronaut Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard was the first American and second person in space. He walked on the moon. And he said this, I think all of us certainly believed the statistics, which said that we had a probability of an 88% chance of mission success and maybe a 96% chance of survival, and we were willing to take those odds. I'm going to talk about that a little bit at the end of the show today. With that, let's go ahead and jump on into it, starting off with highlights from this week's Ron Paul Liberty report. Blatant corporatism, Bill Gates admits the vaccine is only slightly effective, and are the globalists and central planners simply doomed to failure?
2: Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, making $1,000 profit every, not every year, mm. not every month, mm. not every day, oh. not every hour. This has to be a typo. Huh. Every second. Every second. That's a, that's a lot of money. And, you know, the other thing mm. is, is uh, uh, they no, people people say that, uh, you, you know, you can't sue somebody for not having because they don't have to pay for this. They get it for free, so, so this is not a legal transaction. Supply and demand didn't have anything to do with this distribution. Had be had to do with the supply and demand of printed money and who could put their hand on it and get it from the government. And uh, I guess we know some of the people who ended up getting it and became very wealthy over it, and they're still in this business, and they've been in this business for a long time. It was difficult even when i practice medicine trying to figure out exactly what was going on with new drugs and, and for the most part uh, I felt much safer uh, sticking with some of the old traditional drugs unless I knew somebody really well who's yeah. done, you know, that were involved with the research. But that is something that that is a that is something that's thats been happening. It's an example of corporatism. It's an example really, uh, as it continues, as a fascist type of approach and uh, it's, it's not the practice of a medicine. It ruins it to patient relationship, and is done by political edicts, and uh, and they're the ones who make the decision, and sometimes they're not elected official. I mean, maybe most of the time, the big decision. I don't think uh, Fauci is up for election this year, is he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but he's going to get his check. Here's Bill Gates, and it's
3: recorded, so we're not making it up. Quote, we didn't have vaccines to block transmission, said Gates, contradicting previous interviews, in which declaimed the shots significantly block transmission quote we got vaccines that help you with your health but they only slightly reduce the transmission and this is a, from an article that our friend jordan Stachtel wrote and it's on the ron paul institute site as well this is a quote from the from from the great bill gates the great vaxxer and just to prove dr paul that we are not about fake news at all we're going to play it from the horse's mouth Let's watch that clip. It's only 11 seconds, so listen carefully at the beginning. You have vaccines that block transmission. We got vaccines that help you with your health, but they only slightly reduce the transmissions. We need a new, a new way of doing the vaccines. There you have it.
2: You mean you get to do another vaccine and get a government grant and make another $10 billion? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that terrible? You get a
3: do-over, right? It's like everyone gets a trophy.
2: Yeah. When are they going to come to a conclusion? And he's very close to it. The whole thing didn't work. Sorry, false alarm. Yeah. We better start all over again, but no sweat. Not, uh, the, the, uh, the disease isn't quite as bad. That's what they're going to have to say someday. The yeah. children have never been threatened as they claim.
0: You know, planning, this central planning of the world by bankers or politicians or technocrats or tech, whoever, it's impossible. They cannot possibly know or anticipate every change that happens. It's impossible. And I'm going to use a silly example to show uh, how they can't plan everything. Think of this slogan that's been going around, uh, Let's Go branded." It swept the country fast stadiums, football stadiums, are saying. Uh, it, it's even around the world. You know, I'll see video clips from foreign countries, and they have big posters that say, let's go Brandon on That's, It was unplanned. It's unpredictable, and it was unstoppable. So when the time comes, and we don't know when that time comes, that is how liberty will win. There's no central plan for it. We can't say, okay, well, this is going to happen. That's what the, the central planners do. They tell us. They say, okay, we're going to do this to you, and then we're going to do this, and you're going to have a passport, and you're going to have shots and boosters, and then we're going to check you. That's how they operate. We do not operate that way. We know that liberty will win, and when it takes hold, kind of like that Let's Go Brandon, it it spreads like wildfire. Uh, Washington said that when liberty takes root, it is a plant of rapid growth. So, you know, we have to keep our heads up. Freedom will prevail. And freedom is a lot more powerful than a silly slogan like, let's go, Brandon. But until that time comes, whenever it comes, we have to hang tough.
1: Well, I think Chris uh, got cut off a little bit there in the editing. A little word or two probably before he wanted to finish, but I think we get the point. Um, I just want to hit on all three of those points uh, right out of the gate. Um, I, I don't consider it just corporatism. I consider it outright fascism the way this has worked out for these uh, vaccine manufacturers. You have the government paying 100% of the bills with 100% of the people's money and mandating in various ways the use of a product against the will of the people whose money is being taken from them to be spent by government with corporations. The amount of mental gymnastics to explain how that is not fascism, in a rational mind, I think would result in a seizure or a stroke. It's fascism, folks. Next up, uh, Dan McAdams' point that Bill Gates admitted that the vaccines only slightly reduced transmission. I just think it's interesting how many of us were able to tell you that would be the case well before the vaccines even got into circulation. And we knew that because of the nature of this virus, that it is more like the flu You can't have a vaccine that just takes care of it over and over again. It's why they went the spike protein route. That's the thing that they thought would be consistent. And it's created all kinds of problems in addition to not working. And if we had any doubts that we were wrong about it not really being very effective, it became very clear very quickly once it started to be rolled out that there were plenty of people with the vaccine going to the hospital, getting sick, getting the disease, spreading the disease. Right, and this claim, well, it's less virulent or less likely to kill you, just seemed to fall apart. And then, once we looked at the fact that, well, what is unvaccinated? So, a guy that got both shots that goes to the hospital on day 13 after the second vaccination is unvaccinated. When you start looking at what they're actually doing to fudge these numbers, it became really clear really fast. And now you have like King Vaccine, right, admitting it. Um, and, boy, if there, if there is a deep enough hole to drop gates into on the earth somewhere, I hope somebody finds it. Uh, Chris then brings up the central planners and globalists are doomed to failure because what they do is inorganic, and the resistance is organic. And I, I think that's tr- largely true, and I'm going to be doing more shows in the future about more ways that we can be loosely organized with our disorganization, right? And, yeah, if Let's Go Brandon can propagate across the planet With nobody planning for it, what else can we initiate? And I think we just, like, it is an approach of let's fire all the arrows in the quiver at the same time, and the ones that hit their mark, let them then spread, duplicate, and be reshot over and over and over again. With that, one way we can actually develop a lot of freedom for ourselves is through cryptocurrency. John Bush has a couple crypto questions he'll be answering for us now.
4: What's up, TSP friends? John Bush here to answer a question about cryptocurrency. If you want to learn more about the basics of cryptocurrency, buying, selling, trading, holding securely, privacy transactions, all that good stuff, I recently did a workshop uh, strictly for beginners. You can find that at CryptoBeginnersWorkshop.com. That's CryptoBeginnersWorkshop.com. All right, let's get right down to it. The question is from Steve. He says, can you describe what a Bitcoin node is and what benefits it can have for someone who buys, trades Bitcoin? I've been stacking sats, I mean stacking Satoshis, getting small amounts of cryptocurrency, small amounts of Bitcoin monthly for about six months and not sure if it is something I may want to learn and do. Thanks in advance. Okay, so a Bitcoin node essentially is a computer or a server that hosts the Bitcoin blockchain. And that validates transactions, hosts the Bitcoin blockchain and validates transactions. This is how the Bitcoin network is decentralized, essentially. I just checked earlier today. There's over 14,000 Bitcoin nodes spread all across the globe, which is really cool. When I did the crypto for beginners workshop several months ago, it was like 10,000 pushing 11,000. So that means that the network is becoming more and more decentralized. Again, the blockchain is a public ledger that has all of the information about all the transactions that have ever ever taken place on the Bitcoin network. Because it has all the information about the transactions, when new transactions occurs, in order to validate those transactions, in other words, in order to ensure their legitimacy and their authenticity, someone is sending Bitcoin that's rightfully theirs, these nodes and also mining computers, they work to ensure the transactions are legit by checking the history of the blockchain, okay? So if you want to run a node, you need to make sure that you have unlimited bandwidth with your internet service provider. It can take 200 gigabytes of upload data or more per month approximately 20 gigabytes of download data. Pretty sure that's up to date information. I got this from bitcoin.org. And then when you actually download the blockchain, let me see currently, how big is Bitcoin blockchain? It's pretty freaking big. It's a big sizable thing. So it looks like it's 360 gigabytes. So whenever you actually download the blockchain, then you're also gonna be using 360 gigabytes. Now, in order to run a node, one of the best things to do is use what's called the Bitcoin Core Client, which you can download at Bitcoin.org. This is a wallet that also acts as a full node, so it downloads the entire blockchain, which sometimes takes two or three days depending on your internet connectivity. Now, you run this node. Uh, sometimes there's some command line stuff you have to do within the Bitcoin wallet, the Bitcoin Core wallet itself. But the benefits of this, there's not really financial benefit. So it's not like you're going to be making a bunch of money from this. In fact, it could cost money to run your computer uh, or to have the data on the Internet. So the real big benefit is that you're participating in the decentralization of the Bitcoin network. And because this node is attached to a Bitcoin wallet, when someone sends you Bitcoin, you can actually validate the transaction on your own without having to trust other nodes or other peers, right? So, again, there's 14,000 nodes. You can run one using the Bitcoin core wallet. It's a great thing to do, you know, to learn. uh, If you're a hobbyist when it comes to cryptocurrency, if you're a decentralist like myself and you want to decentralize the network, further decentralize the network. Another thing, too, when there's contentious debates about what upgrades should take place on the network, you get to basically vote by choosing which software, which Bitcoin software you want to run, right? Because it all has to be done through consensus. So if a bunch of people want to switch this or say all of a sudden, maybe instead of 21 million coins, we should have 21 billion coins and a handful of nodes start running software that that has 21 billion nodes, right? And you can say, no, we're gonna stick with the 21 million. We're not gonna run that software. We're gonna stick with this software, just so to speak. So, Um, You know, it can be a little bit complicated, not too complicated, uh, but again, there's no financial benefit. You're not rewarded like mining. Uh, The miners are the computers that use computing power to compete for the right to take those validated transactions that the nodes are validating and legitimizing and checking for their authenticity, and they add those transactions to the next block. Those computers are rewarded for doing that practice. Okay, I hope that answers. The question, the next question, what is the best solution for redundancy of a crypto wallet? With the idea of two is one, one is none, can this concept be achieved with hardware wallets? I really need to get out of Coinbase and was originally thinking of a paper wallet, but instead of printing to paper, print to PDF and then save on a couple of Corsair Survivor USB sticks You recommended a couple years ago and encrypt the USB sticks with BitLocker to go store one at home in a safe and another at a family member's house in a safe. Is there a better solution for cold storage with redundancy and security? At the end of the day, most wallets that have a seed phrase, really that seed phrase, this is 12, 18 or 24 words. That's where the rubber meets the road. That allows you to recover your wallet. At the end of the day, you could download a Coinomi wallet or a Jaxx wallet, write down that seed phrase on paper, not on your computer, not on your phone, and then you could delete the wallet software. And essentially, you've taken a hot wallet, one that's connected to the internet that you send and receive cryptocurrency to and from, and you've turned it into a cold wallet, or at least how I define a cold wallet, one that's not attached to the internet and is more intended for savings and storage purposes, right? So that's most wallets. And then you could... Write it down twice or three times and store that in a different place. You could take half of the words, six of the words, the first six, put that somewhere and then the second six elsewhere. All right, so that's one option. Uh, another option is, you know, if you're talking about Bitcoin alone, there's a great wallet called Electrum. It's very simple, very streamlined. But this wallet has multiple layers of security, unlike some of the more simple wallets like Coinomi or Jax. So these wallets, and it's not just Electrum. Other wallets allow you to do this, right? You get your seed phrase, so that's one layer. And with Electrum, you can download a wallet file. This is a, it's usually wallet.dat. This is a file that you would put on the USB drive. And that file has uh, the transactions that have taken place. And it also has the private key and public key combinations, right? So whenever you create a wallet, It creates this master private key, a long series of numbers and letters. The seed phrase is actually just a different representation of that master private key that makes it easier for humans to write down and store places, right? But it's that master private key that then generates a bunch of sub-private keys, right? Master-slave analogy of these slave private keys. And those slave private keys have a corresponding public address. The public address is what people send crypto to if your wallet has that private key then you can spend the cryptocurrency in a public address right so a wallet.dat file has all of that and then electrum and other wallets as well they allow you to they allow you to actually export the private key public key combinations so that's another layer of security i was recently helping a client with monero And we set up Monero through Coinomi, but the Monero was always left pending. It never showed up in the Coinomi account, even though she sent it there to an address. Um, And so we had a 24-word seed phrase with Coinomi, but we wasn't working with Coinomi. So we downloaded the Monero GUI wallet, graphical user interface wallet, but Monero has a 25-word seed. The last word, the 25th word is called a checksum, right? So the 24 word seed phrase didn't work with the 25 words. It was kind of a problem. There's a way around that. But uh, if we had that Monero private key, if we had the actual private key for the address that the crypto was sent to, we would have just been able to sweep or import that private key into another wallet. So if the question is about redundancy, right, you can put the master private key in the form of a seed phrase, You can just have that and copy it and put it in multiple places or put half here and half there. Or you can use a wallet that allows you to export a wallet file. So you have the seed phrase, wallet file. And or you could also have the master, sorry, the private keys, right? To simplify this, I know I'm talking a lot of technical stuff here. To simplify this, if you have that seed phrase, especially if it's 12 or 24 words, which is more common than Monero's 25 words. If you have that seed phrase, then that is what you can make redundant by putting it in multiple different places. And if you want to have an extra layer of redundancy, then you can have the actual private keys. That's really where the rubber meets the road is having the private key that corresponds to a public address that has a bunch of cryptocurrency stored on it. All right. I hope that makes sense. Uh, again, uh, we break down all this and how it all works in the Crypto for Beginners Workshop. You also get to join a, a cryptocurrency community uh, that we that we manage and make sure people get their questions answered with our community manager. Again, you can find that at CryptoBeginnersWorkshop.com. That's CryptoBeginnersWorkshop.com.
1: Next up, I, I realize the uh, the vaccine is a uh, contentious, debatable topic right now, but there are some people who are in some situations where this may be another level of it. It's not just their job being threatened; it's it's their their child being threatened, either because they have a very young child that is still nursing, or even I've seen pressure on women to get this vaccine while they're pregnant. And I've had somebody reach out and ask about the, this issue, uh, and that went to uh, Dr. Canberry for an answer.
5: Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Aaron. Uh, and this this answer is going to apply with anyone who has children or grandchildren. Aaron says, my wife is nursing our infant. Excellent, I'm glad to hear that. She's getting a huge amount of pressure from her work, clients, friend, family to get the jab. I, I say, hold on uh they claim the baby needs the antibodies i look and find babies are rarely getting sick from this i don't see the need my wife is 41 healthy and may have already had covid and back in 2019 her profession is mental health care and she's likely going to be required to get the vaccine in order to see clients in person she's doing telehealth exclusively right now what do you say dr barry i say that all children so far that have been infected with covid 19 99.99% of them, it's like a bad cold or a mild flu. They're sick for a few days and then they get over it. Uh, 99.99% of children do not die from catching this virus. It is just like a case of the flu for young, healthy children. Uh, so it definitely while she's nursing, I would, I would avoid the jab at all costs uh, if she has to get it for her work uh if you guys are good friends with a doctor who offers the jab in their clinic or a pharmacist who offers a jab in, the, in their pharmacy you might be able to work out a way where she can quote unquote get the jab and you guys are all common sense uh prepared people so i think you can get my meaning from that um but if you have to get the jab, as long as you're metabolically healthy and you're not obese or have type two diabetes, I think you're probably pretty safe getting it. But there's not nearly enough research to, to for us to take this jab blindly without doing our own research. So I think your intuition is exactly right that she probably shouldn't do this while she's breastfeeding. I don't think any mom should get the jab while she is pregnant or trying to get pregnant until more research is available. Hope this answer helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you guys next
1: time. I'll just follow that one with, I agree 100%. And uh, next up, I have a question on battery backups for grid-tie homes. Not necessarily doing solar and battery or anything else, but just, why people don't tend toward battery backups in their home, like a Tesla Powerwall or one that you put together, and how res- expense relates to that. With that, uh, Sean Mills has some thoughts on it.
3: Hey, guys. This is Sean Mills with My Solar, and uh, today I've got an expert counsel question from Matt. Matt says, Is cost the only reason more people don't use battery banks in grid tight situations? Details. I've been reading about hot water storage tanks, this hot water quote-unquote battery can accept heat from many different types of sources and then provide hot water for various uses why don't more people use this type of setup for electricity I would think that a battery bank even in a grid-tied situation would be really nice if the power goes out there's no need to switch over I think a charge controller should make it easy to stop back feeding onto the grid and it would be relatively easy to add in other sources of electricity such as a generator solar wind micro and whatever makes the most sense for the location and time of year. I'm sure the cost is high, but it seems like the benefits would be great without having the interruptions you get with switching over to a generator or another source. Thanks. Hey Matt, it's a great question and you know, it comes down to a cost benefit analysis. Most people are going to prep for the things that they perceive as having the biggest impact on them and they will make trade-offs from a financial standpoint. So here's a thought experiment. Let's say I wanted to add enough battery backup to my home to be able to run my Energy Star rated chest deep freezer and refrigerator for two days in the event of a storm-related power outage. Those are the only two things I want to run, and I'm only looking at 48 hours until the power is back on. So regular fridge is going to run about 1,300 watts per day, and a small chest freezer is going to be about the same. Uh, now, you know, I'm not talking about a big, like, 25-foot you know, cubic foot freezer, which is going to run closer to 3,000 watts per day. Just a regular small one, you know, that I use to uh, put meat in when I can buy it on sale. Uh, so let's use the 1300 watts each figure, meaning that we need a battery bank to cover 2600 watts per day of usage. That's 2.6 kilowatt hours, and the average cost of a kilowatt hour in the U.S. is about ten and a half and a half cents meaning the cost of operating these two appliances on a regular day when the grid is up is less than $0.30 or $0.60 for the two-day period we're talking about. Now I'm designing this battery bank to cover two days. I'm going to use flooded lead acid batteries and a 3,000 watt inverter with a regular plug-in charge controller. I want to maintain my batteries at or above 50% depth of discharge, which means at the end of the second day, right before my power comes back on, I don't want to have used more than half the available electricity. Uh, And I'm going to assume the duty cycle of the fridge is about 20% more due to the house not being climate controlled since the power is out and my inverter is gonna be about 95% efficient uh, converting from DC over to AC. So putting those variables together means I need a battery bank with a 20 hour rating of about 6,568 watt hours. But wait, can I use the 20 hour rating when I'm using this for the compressors that are uh, being used for these two appliances? Probably not probably going to draw faster than that 20-hour rating. Um, Realistically, I should probably look at the 10-hour rating. And again, this is because lead-acid batteries um, actually reduce their capacity the faster I draw the electricity out. So let's pick my favorite flooded lead-acid battery, the Trojan T105 golf cart battery. This battery has a 10-hour rating of 207 amp hours at 6 volts, meaning each battery has 1,242 watt-hours. If I divide 1242 into 6568, I get 5.29 batteries. I need an even number because I'm going to design this for 12 volts. So I'm going to round up to six batteries at $150 each. Puts my battery bank right at $900. I'm going to add about $10 per battery for cables and connectors, $400 for my inverter, and about $150 for a charge controller. That brings the total cost of the system to $1,510. $1,510 fifteen hundred and ten dollars to run something that costs sixty cents when the grid is up now I might be able to wait for sales and use some cheaper components might maybe I can shave three or four hundred dollars off this system but best case scenario we're talking about eleven hundred dollars right now for that same eleven hundred dollars I can wait for a sale on a forty five hundred watt inverter generator for about eight hundred bucks Buy two heavy-duty 50-foot extension cords at seventy five dollars each four or five gallon uh, gas cans at $20 each and then fill them up at $3.50 per gallon. So during this two day outage, I'll need to run this generator for about 30 minutes every four hours and I'm gonna use less than four gallons of gas and I can utilize a lot of other appliances at the same time. Well, the difference is with the battery bank, all I need to do is run my extension cords from the inverter to my components and wait for the power to come back on. However, once I get to day two, if you know, I need to do something to those batteries to get them charged back up, which means I'm probably cranking up a generator, right? Now, I could pair this with about 800 watts of solar in a solar charge controller, but obviously that's adding some more cost, you know, and I can go for quite some time with 800 watts, assuming I have good unshaded area and a reliable solar aspect. The reality is, is in most parts of the United States, I can get on average four, hour, four sun hours per day, um, so if I'm generating 800 watts times four hours that's 3200 watts you know derate that a little bit for efficiency losses but I'm still hitting that 2600 watts per day um, charging those batteries back up and then um, and then using them in the evening when the sun's not up so that's where you know stacking those technologies really begins to make the cost-benefit analysis change um, but yeah to sum up batteries can absolutely provide another layer of self-sufficiency But as a backup power source, they do have their limitations. And for now, they're pretty expensive compared to the alternative. This is why a lot of people that come to me and think they want me to to design a solar uh, installation for them or behind the meter storage, you know, and I kind of do the work and do the math and say, guys, I think you're probably better off with a generator and some stored gas. Um, So there is, you know, there are places where you can stack these, like I said, stack these technologies together um, where it really starts to make sense. Um, but again, going back to the cost thing, are we willing to pay the money up front uh, to be able to have that built-in self-sufficiency? As these components come down in cost, that cost-benefit analysis is going to change. Um, right now, you know, flooded lead acid or lithium iron phosphate batteries is still kind of the way to go. They're still pretty expensive And every time you take a little bit of electricity off the grid and put it in there or take electricity from a solar panel and put it in there, you lose a little bit through efficiency losses. So, um, so yeah, like I said, sum up, batteries are a great idea. Uh, they definitely add that extra layer. Uh, but they need to be done the right way so that you don't have to replace them every other year. Um, and yeah, you got to be ready to spend that money. All right, guys, we'll keep the questions coming in and I'll keep them getting them, getting them answered.
1: Um, This is the final piece in the machine to be solved. It's reliable, affordable, long-lasting, and regeneratable. At least they can go away. If we can't rehab them ourselves, they can go away, and a company can rehab them and recycle them and resell uh, batteries that work for this application. It's why I think that Tesla stock probably belongs at least some level in most people's portfolio. I don't think people understand that that's Tesla's real business. I think people think Tesla equals cars. The cars are a way to finance the building of gigafactories to build batteries and things like the Power Wall. and to make it point, click build to where almost anybody can do it. And we're not there yet. However, If your long-term plan is to be solar with battery backup, I do think it makes sense maybe to bite the bullet and build the battery backup portion first because of what Sean started to allude to. Once we have the battery backup system, we can even go then to a battery grid tie system where it's all automated. Power goes off. There's power to everything from the battery backup system. I think at that point, you do have to have like a conscious effort to shut everything off. You don't need to be running because you just went through how it doesn't run forever. But then if we add a generator, we charge the battery bank instead of running the appliances off the generator. And then if we add solar, it just gets more powerful. And we start to get to situations where maybe at least we can, you know, maybe we run that generator during the day, but at night we can turn it off. Or maybe we stop using the generator to charge up the battery bank and we use it for some things that need to happen on the property that aren't generally part of the regular grid system or something like that uh, into our home. Uh, I'm going to save my thoughts on this because the next, not the next one, but uh, another one that we have today uh, goes with this uh, remarkably well. Next one we have is from Doc Bones, and it's on how long do antibiotics remain effective in storage, and are there ways to prolong
6: that number? Hi, Joe Alden MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the brand-new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded, now available on Amazon and at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from John, who writes, What is the exact mechanism for antibiotic degradation? If I store the pills in Mylar bags with O2 absorbers, will they last longer than just storing them in their bottles? More info. I own a freeze dryer and as a result have a large stock of Mylar bags and O2 absorbers. I have an impulse sealer that makes airtight seals on the Mylar pouches. If I take the pills out of the bottles and store them in the Mylar bags with O2 absorbers, will they last longer than just sitting on the shelf in their own bottles? John, concerns about drug stability and storage is certainly a big issue in the preparedness community. Antibiotics degrade during travel in the human body as well as over time on the shelf, but usually not at the rate you'd expect from the expiration date. Antibiotics and other drugs are susceptible under improper storage conditions to lose potency due to various reasons, but mostly due to hydrolysis caused by moisture or heat and light, which causes oxidation. Oxidation involves the removal of electrons from a molecule or the addition of oxygen, and such reactions can be initiated by light or heat. Despite oxidation being responsible for drug decomposition, It hasn't been studied in as much detail as the effect of moisture, since oxidative degradation can often be reduced to acceptable levels by storing susceptible drugs in the absence of light by using amber bottles. Hydrolysis caused by moisture is thought to be the more common pathway for drug degradation. In the human body, after distribution in the tissues and body fluids, metabolizing enzymes in the liver degrade the antibiotic. The end result is a more easily eliminated substance. Antibiotics and their metabolites are removed from the body by the kidneys as urine or through bile as feces. However, not all antibiotics are readily converted into inactive metabolites, and they remain active even in wastewater and soil. In some cases, a significant percentage of the active antibiotic is excreted by the body essentially unchanged, which has caused alarm in some environmental circles. But we're talking more, I think, about storage. Most antibiotics are sealed in bottles that shut out light and use desiccants that remove moisture. Stored in a dark, cool, dry area, they'll last often for years beyond their expiration date. Now, a little about humidity. The average citizen stores their meds in a medicine cabinet in the same room where they take showers or baths. This is a mistake as bathrooms are probably the most humid places in the house. Store in a container in your closet or other dryer room instead. As for vacuum sealing, most drugs do not come vacuum sealed, so it's reasonable to ask if there's a benefit to vacuum sealing with O2 absorbers. As I mentioned, with most drugs, moisture is the main issue as opposed to oxidation. The main point of oxygen absorber packets is that they, well, absorb oxygen, not moisture. This is why many pill bottles contain desiccants such as silica instead of oxygen absorbers. Some suggest using both desiccants and oxygen absorbers, but desiccants reduce relative humidity in a container to very low levels, which actually might affect an oxygen absorber's ability to carry out its mission. This is because O2 absorbers, although some deny this, by the way, carry a small amount of moisture needed to sustain the reaction. Oxygen absorbers also produce a certain amount of heat, one of the enemies of drug storage. When you have heat on one side of a barrier and cooler temperatures on the other side of a barrier, you get what? You get moisture. So perhaps vacuum sealing with desiccants alone might be a better way to go. Remember that this strategy doesn't remove the need to take temperature into account. A drug that's stored at 90 degrees Fahrenheit loses potency twice as fast as one stored at 50 degrees. If your chosen course of action after hearing this is still to use both desiccants and O2 absorbers, Separate them in the container. You should place the desiccant at the bottom of the container and the O2 absorber on top. Having said all this, most medications in pill or capsule form, as I've written many times, will last for years beyond their expiration date if simply stored in the original container and kept away from heat, light, and moisture. Freezing doesn't help in most cases and can degrade some meds. Freeze drying is a long and expensive proposition, and repackaging is, honestly, for the most part, unnecessary. How much of a difference does freeze drying make? Well, the problem I have with being certain about some of this stuff is that the pharmaceutical companies really have little motivation to tell you the truth about how long medicines last. They certainly have little reason to figure out ways to prove that their drugs will last longer and thus make less money by having you buy them less often. It took a Department of Defense study for me to actually convince people that they won't grow feathers or a horn in the middle of their foreheads or other ill effects from using the vast majority of drugs past their expiration dates. This type of research isn't always available to the general public, let's face it. You can't follow the science if the results aren't available to the average citizen. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you support our mission to put a medically prepared person into every family, please check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear, including N95 masks, at store.doomandbloom.net. And check out the greatly expanded, brand new, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook over at Amazon or at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, next up today, I have now one for
1: Derek Pompietro, and we're kind of following some stuff that kind of meshes together here. Uh, We talked about um, battery backup a a bit ago and power backups with Sean Mills. Uh, Now we're going to talk about using gas if you have a property that has free gas. This is a thing. It's generally when you have uh, oil production on your property And the gas, they would normally flare off. They pump it into your home, and then you can use it as you see fit, and it's part of your contract. Um, It's a complicated question you'll hear in the beginning. uh, Derek say, I really don't know how to describe this question. I would agree uh, with that. Derek, let's talk about this subject.
7: Happy Thursday, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. If you're looking to run DC accessories or charge batteries using an alternator attached to a small engine. I've got your solution. I've got a question from Cheryl and I don't know how to describe it. So let's just get right into it. Cheryl writes, my question is about energy solutions. I live in Ohio, currently have electric and gas like most people, but I am on a water well and a gas well. My electric costs per month are roughly hundred dollars. Gas is free as I am on a well and Cheryl Just to interrupt your question here, I had actually looked this up, so what I'm presuming is that you have some type of rights due to your land situation from a gas company that is drilling in the area, and they are supplying you with free fuel as per the contract. So that's my assumption because I didn't really know what you were talking about. All right, I've been in this house for nine years, and we are getting ready to do a major renovation as part of this. We would like to take full advantage of our gas well and are looking to add a gas-fired whole house generator as a backup for when the power goes out. We would need a generator strong enough to power at least one 220 line because of the water well. A few questions, though. Is it better to just go straight off-grid and not use electric at all since we have a gas well? Is it better to use the whole house generator as a only a backup since it requires less maintenance that way? What about going completely insane with this thing and converting my cars to natural gas? My husband drives personal vehicles for a living. Think Amish Uber. And converting our vehicles to natural gas would get us off the grid even more. I want to use this resource a little more than we have and want to explore my options before we invest. Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks, Cheryl. Okay, let's just untangle this big question. And you got a lot of great things going on, so let's first start with the vehicles because it's the easiest one. Absolutely not. My recommendation is to not buy a natural gas or propane vehicle. These are really vehicles meant for fleet operations in which they have the ability to refuel on-site or at a specific site. In which is in their territory, and this requires more expense on the vehicle because it doesn't come from the manufacturer. It's typically like an add-on, and you need to have a pump station. Now, I'm assuming you don't want to buy a pump station for just your vehicles, and not to mention, it's not like you can just take this vehicle to the average Joe mechanic because now you've got a little more complexity on the vehicle, and... Honestly, if it showed up in my bay, I would be a little confused and maybe even turn it away if it had an engine problem, just because maybe people don't want to get into that as a mechanic. So it's just an odd duck, and it's not right for your situation. I think if you're looking to reduce your consumption of gasoline, maybe think about a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid, which can get you a little more mileage on on just the electric, or maybe go full EV, and that can be tied in to solar as well. But I think I think going electric for your vehicle transportation needs over uh, uh, gaseous fuel is probably the way to go. That's my recommendation. So get that one out of the way now. Now you mentioned you want to have a backup generator, standby generator. And this is a great idea because you have basically free fuel, which is going to be a big expense depending on how long you run it. So all of your home standbys are going to have split phase. So as you said, you've got a well pump that requires 240 volts. And a home standby generator is going to be able to power this without a problem. So this is is a common load for most people that don't live in the city and have city water. In other words, the water is pressurized into the house, so there's no pump needed to get water. Even without power, you open the faucet and you get water. You guys, you need the electricity to run the pump and to get water out of your faucet. So a standby generator is going to be able to do this, no problem. Now, here's the great situation when you run a lot of the large demand items off of gas. These are items such as your stove, your dryer, your means of producing heat, both for hot water and for heating the structure, in that when they burn gas to get the heat out of the item, it takes very little electricity from the generator in order to run it. In other words, it takes very little power from a generator to run all of those devices versus if you had an electric stove or an electric hot water heater where it takes all of the electricity to heat up the water, that takes a huge generator to do that. So by converting all over to gas appliances, one, you're going to get new appliances, which is great. Two, you're going to be able to operate those for free, which I think if you put into a spreadsheet is going to be a big chunk of coin. And third, it's going to greatly reduce the size of your generator needs. So based on all of that, and I don't have any specifics to your situation, but if you don't have any kind of central air conditioning, you can almost get away with probably the smallest standby generator, which is going to be, like, in the 7 to 10 kilowatt range, depending on the brand, I would recommend Generac, and that's going to be a 10KW. The smaller ones below that, you start to get into, like, 6 to 7, and those are junk. Those are basically portable generators that are configured for home standby, and they're not going to have as much runtime as a genuine standby. So I'd probably go with, like, a 10KW Generac, if I were you, and that's going to be able to basically power everything because... the big demand is is already powered off of the gas. If you have have central AC, then you're going to probably have to do some more load calculations, and you might be stepping up a couple sizes. But regardless, you can power the whole house with a fairly small generator with what you got going on. So I think I got two of your questions there. Now, the whole thing about going straight off-grid and not using electric at all, this is where it's probably not the best idea. So in theory, yes, you could get a really large generator. You could probably spend tens of thousands of dollars for a low speed gaseous generator. That's going to be very quiet and efficient, but it is going to cost you an arm and a leg up front. And then you've got maintenance costs. If this thing's running non-stop or even on a duty cycle, you're going to you're going to consume a lot of fuel, which is free, but then you've got to pay to maintain this thing. And then you also have to consider uh, parts failures. So repairs and, and honestly, you could buy an awful lot of electricity for just the maintenance on a, on a big generator like that. So I'm not going to recommend doing that. Now I think a better solution since you have, again, all of your major loads running off of gas in the house is that you have a very small footprint for energy and That means that you can get into solar cheaper because you don't need as much. And now you can start talking about local on-site storage, so maybe a battery system as well. And though you're going to be able to use all of your electricity locally in the house, so in theory you may not even have an electric bill, you still want to be attached to the grid if possible. So that system, in the case of a power outage, you're going to run off of your battery. You can power all of your house with no problem. You can... Wash the clothes and dry them and cook the Thanksgiving turkey and have heat in the house in the wintertime. No problem because you got gas, but you've got electricity in the battery and the solar in order to run the electrical load on the house. And again, since you have a low footprint, that's going to be relatively affordable as well. And if you're still interested in a standby generator, there are systems that you can get into where if the battery is deplete below a certain state of charge, generator can kick on and that can get you recharged up and then it shuts itself off. There's plenty of different systems, whether you're in Generac or you're going to look more of a standard off-the-shelf off the solution, like Outback. That's more of a Sean Mills question, probably. Uh, he can get you straightened out on that. But that's a better solution. And you still want to stay connected to the grid, because the grid offers stability for the devices in your house when they kick on, so the load isn't all on the inverter. And even though the grid is there, You can disconnect from that when the power goes out, but you still want to connect to it if it's there, ideally. And if, you know, the end of the world happens, your your system is still going to work fine. I think that's an important part a lot of people miss. If the grid is outside, you want to connect to it, even if you have solar and battery. And then, of course, that gets into the electric vehicle. So if you size the system accordingly, potentially you could drive your vehicle for free and you don't have to pay for electricity to charge it. You could think about maybe, like, Ford lightning. That can power your house, potentially, and also run off of all electricity. There's a whole ton of different options there that, you know, that's that's a rabbit hole we can go down to for another day. But the situation is you don't want to necessarily run your house electrically off of a generator just because the gas is free. That's not an ideal solution, and it's not going to be cheap. So, Cheryl, I hope I answered all of your questions. There was a a bunch of them in there. I hope I straightened them all out. As always, guys, thank you for the questions. Take care.
1: So just a couple things. One, it would seem to me with even like a standby generator or something, which is very affordable and adds a, a tremendous amount of utility in this situation, you could then over time add solar, battery bank, and have that generator um, some way set up to automatically top off batteries at certain intervals so that you have... Kind of the best of all things, and you would never be running it enough then to kind of overrun the work capacity of a Generac, which is pretty damn good. I looked deeply at getting one um, here, but with some limitations, we, we we use propane, and what it would take to be able to put in a large enough propane tank to make it really make sense, uh, kind of pushed us out of the, out of doing it. Um, but it did, did give me a pretty good idea of you know what you can expect from a Generac, and then just a little story. So. Uh, my friend Brian Black, who runs ITS Tactical, a lot of you are aware of him, during uh, the big freeze that happened here in February this year in Texas, and he was on whatever the electrical was where people were getting billed like you know $100 an, an hour or more or something like that because uh, it's tied to wholesale gas prices. or something. I don't know how it works, but it was a bad deal for those people. Uh, when he found out that was happening to him, he just shut off the, the grid power. And since he was on natural gas on grid, he just ran the whole house off it, I think, for almost a week. So um, they do have some longevity to them. Then, you know, my last thing is, I just have to say this. I can't not say this. If I had unlimited free natural gas to my house, I might buy a really big badass generator because, hmm, what can you do with surplus energy? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe cryptocurrency mining. Just a thought. With that, let's take another one. Uh, this one from Nicole Sauce on starting a coffee roasting business.
8: Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holla Roast Coffee in this case with a question from Jerry about starting a home roasting business. Jerry's asking, what advice do you have for someone considering starting up a coffee roasting business? And the background here is that Jerry and his wife are planning to retire, looking for sort of a retirement business, and they love coffee. So why not ask Nicole Sauce how to start a coffee business? You're not the only person who's asked me this question in the last few months, Jerry. Jerry, And I think... The most important things to start with on any retirement business that you're looking to get into is to, to run the numbers. Find out, do you think you can sell it? What will your market take? How are you going to market to people? Who are you going to market to? How much coffee do you think you can sell? And then also find a way to maybe volunteer or get a job. I mean, I know you're saying you're retiring, but get a job at a coffee roastery or something of that nature to learn the craft. Of course, You can just start get a home coffee roaster and start roasting on your own. If you're an MSB member, there should be a video in Jack's MSB of me roasting coffee on a cast iron skillet, which just walks you through the process of that. Definitely check that one out if you can. But getting to know how to roast and what the various roasts are really helps you get started in this business. However, the really short answer for you is go to my podcast. I've, I have included three links that I sent to Jack, which are part one, two, and three about starting your home roasting business and listen to those and decide if you're willing to put everything into it that it's going to take. Cause it takes a lot to start any small business. And so if you don't really love it and don't want to be in that kind of a business after listening to those, then don't do it. But if you do, then start talking to coffee roasters in the network like Brian Norton from Food Forest Farm loves to encourage people to get going. I love to encourage people to get going. And I bet that we'd be willing to talk to you on the phone about it when you get some thoughts in order. I do think it's important though to start by getting some thoughts in order about where you want to go. That's pretty much what I have to say on starting your home coffee roasting business, guys. It's like any other business. It's a business. Decide if you want to build it into your life. Make it a great week. (laughs) Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just had an idea. Oh, my gosh. Brian. Brian Norton knows a lot about starting a coffee roasting business. I know a lot about starting a coffee roasting business. And we've got a bunch of people interested in what? Starting coffee roasting businesses. Y'all, if you're listening to this, not just Jerry, but everybody, and you'd be interested in a session or two where we have a roundtable discussion on this, like over StreamYard or Zoom or something, I'm pretty sure I could talk Brian into it and I know I'll come and then we could handle all of this at once in one little group session. If you're interested in that, go to the comments section of this expert Council segment show and write in the comments that you're interested. I will check in after it's been out for a couple of weeks and see who's interested. If we have enough interest, heck, we'll just get it scheduled and do it. Okay, now really make it a great week.
1: Um, I think it's a great idea, and you guys can get with her, and I'm sure if they get just a few people that want to do it, they'll put together a session on it, which would be awesome. Um, I do want to throw a little bit of caution out here, though, and I have no idea whether this applies to the person asking the question or not, but I know it applies to people in general. It is very common that people will see a person do a thing, and that could be make a product, it could be create a service, it could be do a podcast or whatever it is. And they'll see that, and they'll go, well, that's pretty cool. I, I I, could do that for a living. And they generally don't understand the amount of work that goes behind it. And I think that's why it's very important, and Nicole, Nicole alluded to this, that you really love what you're going to do when you go into this kind of a business. So I noticed that when TSP became successful, there were quite a few podcasts that started coming out in the preparedness space. And... At least some, if not the majority, if, if not the vast majority of them, were probably somehow influenced with, hey, if this clown can do it, I can too. And I think that's a good thing, right? It's And I said when it was happening, like, go for it. Go for it. I, I, I do not fear competition, but don't do it because you think since Jack did a prepper podcast, if I do a prepper podcast, it'll be successful, right? Or that because Nicole did a coffee business, coffee is the way that anybody can build a business. I think anybody can build a podcast Business. I think anybody can build a podcast business in in the space that we're in. I think it's a good space. I think anybody can build a product business. I think if they want that product to be coffee, they can do that too. But I think we have to be cautious in that it is very easy for anybody who's not built something like this to look at somebody else that did it and think the product is the reason for success. The business system is the reason for success and the business system has a lot to do with the quality of the product and ensuring that the product is delivered not only with high quality but it's not damaged during delivery that people get what they asked for they get it in a reasonable amount of time etc but it's also the branding of the product the marketing of the product etc if somebody wants coffee right now they literally have a million choices and it's an okay business to go into under that circumstance because it is if you want to call caffeine a drug, it's the drug of choice for the vast majority of society. And if you ask ten people who drinks coffee, probably eight will say I do, right? And they'll range in people who drink Starbucks to drink, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, artisan roasted uh, coffee products like Nicole or Brian produce to people like John Dowie who drink the cafe. And I don't mean the kind that you get at McDonald's. I mean the kind that comes in a can that literally says McCafe on it, like a number 10 can, and they scoop that into their coffee maker and schlep that. But it's such a huge market. And that's why you'll find, like, in some markets, when somebody's entering the market, the people that are doing it will kind of be negative toward them. But, like, coffee, podcasting, unless you're a moron, uh, a lot of other things, somebody wants to come in that market and you're in it already, like, go ahead. Because, you know, more excitement in the market's better for you. And there literally isn't any competition. Because when you're trying to, you know, when you're a, 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 an artisan coffee roaster, if you have a thousand customers, you, you probably have more customers than you can handle. Unless you want to grow with a multi tiered distribution system and stuff like that, that's way past what you need. And then you live in a country with over 300 million people, and if we had to round it off to 300 million adults, Or people that are old enough to be in the coffee drinking range, you have an audience of 280 million people then uh, at that rate. Let's say it's 200 million, right? It's only two thirds of the population. Um, It's still, my God, like how much room is there? You know, a million is a thousand thousand. So you take one million of those 200 million and you have room for a thousand artisan roasters to have a thousand customers. And it doesn't even make a dent in the total. So yeah, there's no real worry about competition in a place like that. The worry is always, do you get what you're signing up for? And if you want to go in the coffee business, because you just like roasting coffee, and you don't even want to be as big as Nicole is, and you want to maybe make a couple hundred dollars a month extra, plus drink really great coffee for free on top of it, plus create write-ups, do it. If you want to build something big enough to sell the business itself at some point, do it. Just understand that roasting coffee is only one piece of a coffee roasting business. Indeed, if I just wanted a coffee brand, TSP Coffee, I could, I could spin it up very, very quickly and let someone who's already good at roasting do it for me. And all I would do is the marketing and the branding and, and, and the systemization of follow-up marketing. And so if you want to be a one-stop shop, Then you have to have a passion for what you're doing. I run this podcast alone, uh, with the exception of my wife, you know, keeping, making sure I keep my commitments and booking my guests. 95% of what happens on this show, I do alone editing, finding guests, finding partners, like everything I do. I can only do that because I love it. Like I've never run a business that way in my life. I've never run a region that way as an employee in my life. You use leverage, and when you get into something where you really want to run it all, you want to do it all, you got to love it. That's just my thoughts on that one. All right, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our quote of the day. Um, I was looking for a quote of the day that was um, by someone who was born today. I just thought that would be fun. Maybe I'll do this for a while. You know, can I find someone that was born on the day that the quote of the day is being read? And Alan Shepard was born on November 18th. And Alan Shepard said of his mission, I think all of us certainly believe the statistics that said that we had probably an 88% chance of mission success and maybe a 96% chance of survival, and we were willing to take those odds. Like I said, Alan Shepard did walk on the moon in 1971. Um, However, this quote was about his first mission to space, period. Uh, the Russians beat us by a couple of weeks, and then it was time for his mission. We had never done it before. And so everybody looks at it. Everybody gives their best guess and said there's an 88% chance the mission will succeed and a 96% chance that the astronaut will survive the mission. Now, that might seem kind of crazy because if the mission succeeded – would you expect that the astronaut would survive, right? So how can you have the mission success percentage lower than the survival rate? Well, there were ways where the mission would fail, but Alan would have survived. In other words, maybe the, the, the they scrubbed the mission before takeoff. Or they failed to actually accomplish the total mission of being able to get out of the atmosphere and orbit. I, I don't know, but... I'll tell you what, the odds of survival probably went down below that 96% once you went up over the 88 Once that thing's up in space and you have to have a capsule re-enter the atmosphere, I guess you could say now the odds were 100% because it worked. But you had, there had to be a point in that, understanding how vulnerable a man in a capsule like that was on re-entry that maybe you didn't feel so confident about the 96% anymore once you got the chance to try that part out. But I want to look at a bigger picture of this. We as a nation decide we're going to put a man in outer space. And as we start building rockets to do this with and testing rocks, a lot of them explode. Like explode on the launch pad or get just a little bit off and explode. Um, We finally get that going right. We get some satellites up there. And now we decide we're going to put a man at the tip of a missile. We're going to spend millions and millions and millions, billions of dollars to push that missile into outer space and hope that man makes it back. We're going to have all these people dedicated to it. There's a 4% chance he's going to die. There's a 12% chance we're going to outright fail in some way. But we did it. And we looked at that man and we said, that's a hero. That's a hero. We had a common ideal and a belief that courage was a virtue. And I won't dig into the many ways it's true today, not just the covades, right? But the many ways it's true today, that we have now turned fear into a virtue rather than courage. And the reason I wanted to use this quote when I saw it, is because it made me think of something I've said a couple times before on this show about losing our vision as a society. I I kind of agree with Penn and Teller. They did a lot of stuff for libertarianism and talking about bashing the government. And in one of their shows, they did and this was not their magic stuff. This was a a serious thing they did, like a docu-series. And they did a thing on NASA. And they said, you know, it's it's difficult for us because we hate the state. But of all the things the state does... This is the thing that's really cool and beneficial to mankind. It's pretty old that they did that. And it was talking about this version of NASA. This idea. You know, there's a 4% chance you're going to die. Do you want to do it? Yeah. Okay. Let's go. And there's so many ways that we have now at this point in time made fear virtuous and we have made courage look to be evil. And I sit back and I remember being a little kid in the 1970s. I'll admit it, I watched Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers brought a real astronaut on. And that real astronaut talked about moon rocks. And I was fascinated by this. And this was a time when kids paid attention to the space program. And we knew that astronauts drank Tang because, well, the Tang people told us so we would want to drink Tang. And I would get my grandma to make me a glass of Tang, and I would sit in this this easy boy recliner. I would drink my Tang, and I would lay back in it like I was a kid, but I was an astronaut, you know, going to space. And I dreamed of someday being an astronaut. I remember being very, very young and finding out the best way you could become an astronaut was to become a pilot. And then be a great pilot. And then try to become an astronaut. And that I would never be a pilot in the military because I'm blind in one eye, and it doesn't make sense to let somebody fly aircraft when they can't see out of on one side of their head. And being a little kid and devastated, I'm never going to be an astronaut. And I found out there were other ways, but in time, like a lot of dreams kid ha- kids have, I decided I wanted other things. That wasn't my path. But I don't. For- I haven't forgotten that I dream of that, or I dreamed of that, past tense. And I said on the past on the show, I wonder how many little kids today dream of growing up and being an astronaut today. I think it's very few, if any at all. But when I was a kid, it was a very common thing. The kid would want to grow up and be the guy who would say, I have a 4% chance of dying. Let's go. We've lost that. We don't have to let it be that way, though. We can start dreaming big again. Teaching our kids to dream big again. And knowing that life comes with risk, but a risk-free life is... Well, in my opinion, hardly worth living at all. doesn't mean we take stupid risks. But when the risk is worth it for the potential of doing something truly great, not only do we take the risk, we should admire those that do instead of making fear into the ultimate virtue, which is the twisted, sick society we seem to be living in today. Well, with that, let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us. There's two great ways to do that. One's to become a member of the MSB or Member Support Brigade. And if you become a member of the MSB, you'll get discounts on a lot of things you're probably buying anyway. When you buy those things from time to time, use the discounts, get your money back. And at the same time, you're supporting the show at about $0.18 cents an episode. Without the MSB, this show could not have been running for 13 years. I could not do all the things that I do and put out all the information that I have. And thank you to everybody that's ever become a member, uh, ever has been a member, or ever will become a member. I should probably say that more. Also, then the painless, cost-free way to become uh, a supporter of this show is when you're going to spend money, and you're going to do it anyway, start your shopping at tspaz.com. If you do that, you see everything I recommend. Uh, all the reviews I've done, and if it's there, I own it, I bought it, I'd buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend you spend your money on it. Uh, and if you don't buy those things, as long as you start there, you still support us, again, so that costs you nothing but a couple extra seconds of your time. The website, again, tspaz, dot Today's item of the day is the Greater Goods Digital Pocket Scale. This is an inexpensive, little, and very accurate scale. I've been very pleased with it. I primarily use it for weighing... Uh, master blend fertilizer for my hydroponic systems. I'm going to be talking a lot more about hydroponics as we head into, uh, as we once we come back from Thanksgiving, we're going to do some refresher stuff on hydro. This is a great time to grow indoors. Uh, it's a time to provide yourself with fresh nutritious food indoors or in a greenhouse, especially a heated greenhouse, and this is the easiest way I know to do it. Uh, doing it with hydroponics, you need an accurate scale to do so. And the Greater Goods Digital Pocket Scale is a great way to go. Um, I'm all for simplifying things. If you read my write-up on it today, I've appended some advice, and I actually got rid of my EC meter. Some of you that are hydro people, you're like, no! Yep, I did. All I do is measure the amounts, throw it in by the gallon, and put it in and grow my stuff. There's some limits to that approach, but... Um, I think if you read my rationalization, you'll understand for the small time person growing mostly leaf crops, it works, works for me anyway. Um, but I am not comfortable going with a volume based measurement for this in such small amounts, given that master blend is mixed at two grams to the gallon for two parts and one gram to the gallon for other part for the other third part of the mix. Um, I think we need to have an accurate scale for that, and this little scale is great, and you can always support us again, whether you're getting a great or good scale today or just starting your shopping at tspaz.com in a time of the year where there's going to be a lot of shopping. With that, we've wrapped up. I hope you enjoyed today's Expert Council show. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down.
3: a better way